walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 72. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. Well, we've made it. We might be staggering into the finish line a little bit, cutting it as close as possible. But we're going to make it regardless. The final episode in the now 10-part Via Podiensis series, just before I head off to Europe for the next walk. In this last episode, I break slightly from the formula established in previous episodes in the series, focusing primarily on finishing the dang walk through the six remaining stages. Was this partially a time-saving measure to trim one extra episode from the production schedule? Guilty as charged. That said, it was also a reflection of some less loaded stages. Fewer towns and villages, fewer noteworthy sites to discuss, appallingly few bakeries relative to the previous stages. There just wasn't as much for us to sink our teeth into. Nonetheless, there are still two parts to the episode. In the first half, I speak with Robert Deming from deep in the heart of Texas, about the 96 or so kilometers linking Ersur Ledur and Navarrense. He's followed in the second half by three teenagers from Portland, Oregon, George Pritchard, Rachel Kors, and Willa Whalen Stewart, who walked with me last summer. They carry us forward to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. And since we didn't have a ton to discuss in those stages, we also made this a capstone for the series by breaking out the gimmick of all gimmicks, a five-round fantasy draft of places on the Via Podiensis. More than anything, though, I thought it was a helpful activity for crystallizing which places linger most prominently in their memories and why. So that's the plan for the last episode in this Via Podiensis series and the last Camino podcast episode period for a while. Well, thanks for speaking with me, Robert. And I'm looking forward to talking about this section with you. When I reached out to you originally a while back, I threw out a bunch of options and you indicated right away that your preference was the southern half of the Via Podiensis. And that stood out to me because I think a lot of people are automatically focused on the first half, the northern half. There are a lot of significant highlights up there. Yeah, like the Plubo Village, you know, these incredible <laughs> villages, right? They don't have those in the southern half. No, it's very different. And I think for some people, it can almost feel like a mild letdown. Not that the walking is bad, but it's different. And the highlights are not quite as pronounced. So what was it about the southern half that held appeal for you? Well, I stayed at Ajit the year before in Cahor. Um, Ajit Relais de Jacobin. And it's a really good host there. He's really a fabulous guy. It was a great, great stay. He obviously knew a lot about the trail. He didn't know anything about decorating. His decorating were notes pinned to the wall with thumbtacks. <laughs> As it turned out, a couple of years later, he got married, and that probably all changed. <laughs> but he said that for eight years running, he had, on October 15th, he'd locked the door to his jeet and headed down the trail to Santiago and walked to Santiago. I asked him, I said, the trail after Gaor, after Moisak, doesn't have that greater reputation. 
you know, for being beautiful and all that. I said, what do you think about that? He said, the, the trail always has something to offer. And it has its own beauty and it's different every time, but it always has something to offer you. That is absolutely true. It always has something to offer. Yeah, without question. And this section that we're going to be talking about from Air Sur Ladur to Navarrense, it's pretty flat. It's easier walking. Yeah, it's still hilly, but it's not as hilly. The first half is big hills. Second part is just small hills. And especially if you're walking from Lapui, that second half of the walk, you've got the routine. You have a feel for things. You're feeling hopefully a bit stronger. And so the walk changes a little bit. I think that your relationship with the walk, you're not quite as exhausted. You're not quite as drained, maybe. You're more in the flow. You're just living. Yeah, so many of the people that I met in the first part, and I've been in that first part twice, 18 and 21, and so many people are just doing a week or two, or they're going, typically people left the trail at Honk. And so the people who were going beyond Moisak, for sure, they were usually walking to Santiago, and they'd been on the trail for a while, you know, and they were going all the way. So it's kind of a different crowd, too. Agreed. It's less of the holiday traveler a walking vacation, and more people who are looking for something spiritual out of the trip. So we're going to talk about this section, 96 or so kilometers. I'm going to organize it into three stages. This is a hard one from a book perspective, because those are three long stages. A lot of people do it because it's, as we talked about, flat. It's much easier walking. But there's just not a lot of big towns along the way, not a lot of obvious endpoints for individual stages. But certainly many people will do this in four, five, six stages. How did you break down this section? Five stages? Yeah. yeah. We prefer 18 kilometers a day, the people I walk with. So we kind of do 16 to 24. That makes sense. Yeah, because at 70, you know, I'm 70 now. You don't have anything to prove. And <laughs> I, had, I had this friend from that section. She was this really pretty girl from um, the Netherlands. Sophia Len, she's probably under 30. She said, it doesn't matter how far you're walking, the last five kilometers always hurts. It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's so true. You're so focused. Your mind is locked in when you're walking. And when you get to that end point, you just have the letdown. You start thinking about the end and you notice the pain so much more. Yeah. So the stages will break it into organizationally. It'll be a little bit longer, but just as a tool to think through all of this stuff. So we'll start with Ersur Ladur to Arzak, Araziget, some very long names in this section. And you mentioned right out of the gates where you stayed in Ersur Ladur, which we both love. So say a word about what makes the Chapelle d'Ursuline so special. So I think the reason people stay there because they see the Facebook photo, <laughs> the candles on the table and the stained glass windows. It's real. It, when I was there, I think there were 35 people staying there that night. Mm hmm. And it was quite a project. He undertook an enormous project because that building was, when it was purchased, I think someone other than him in very recent times, it was about to fall in. It had been abandoned for a long time. So that's quite a project. He had a, an English woman who was coming through to show some friends this display about the windows. And she was the stained glass person who rebuilt the windows. And I could talk to her because she spoke, she was English. She lived near there. But, uh, you know, up on these scaffolds, these tall scaffolds replacing those windows, that's an enormous project, you know, just to have a place for people to spend the night and eat dinner. Now, I was impressed with this level of commitment to that. And just 
as you said, 35, that's a very large sheet on the Via Podiensis. Yes. Those who walk the Camino Frances might say, wow, that's kind of small. But in France, that is a very large sheet. That's a lot of pilgrims to manage yeah. and just a remarkable space to spend an afternoon and evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a beautiful place. And the story about it's really interesting. That was a really good stay. We left out of there early in the morning and just up the hill on the way out of town, there's a really, really old church. Yeah. The rock is falling apart. It's so old. I think it's a thousand years old. But, you know, you look at that and you think, wow, this thing is so old that the artwork has deteriorated significantly. You can hardly see it anymore. Really, really old. Some of those towns on the way, too, the economy didn't look great. Some of them, we didn't think there was going to be a place to get anything to eat. You know, so a few times there, everything was closed. It's a tough stretch. And it is. To me, when I was looking back through this route out of Ersur Lador and route to Arzak, what stood out to me is the first half of that, basically, the first 18 kilometers, there's basically nothing. So it felt analogous as I thought back. Again, many people have the Camino Frances as their starting point to the, the walk from Carrion de los Condes towards Casadilla de la Cueza, this long, long stretch of no resupply points. So that jumps out at me. What jumps out at you in this walk from Ersur Lador? Sunflowers <laughs> it's, and corn. <laughs> Somewhere that I got lost in the corn. I made a wrong turn. I turned, I thought, oh, which is it this side or that side of a tree line? And I took the left and it was the wrong way. And I got lost in the corn. You can get lost in corn. It gets pretty tall. I worked my way. I could see the village. Man, <laughs> that was rough getting there. Cross country. <laughs> Yeah, but corn, that's where you used to get into sunflowers and corn just nonstop. Yeah, I think sunflowers kick in a few days before that. And now you're kind of approaching the line of demarcation or the transitional zone from sunflowers to corn. And when you have corn on one side of you when you're walking, that's one thing. But when the corn starts going up on both sides of you, right. You, right. you can't actually see over it on either side. You are just basically in a corn trench. Yes. So the walk will eventually deliver you into Miramont Sensak. It's kind of an odd village. You come in high and you walk past the church, which is up on the hill above town, and there's a cemetery. And then you kind of like wind through the village going downhill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I remember that, yeah. There's a bakery. I remember it had apricot croissants. That's, <laughs> that's my memory of Miramont is apricot croissants, which is a pretty good memory. yeah. But not much more. And then the corn just picks right back up as you escape Miramont. Yeah, in there too, we ran across rain. In fact, we had the hardest rain I've had on the trail, and it was cold. However, we all had good rain gear because we walked all day in hard driving rain and cold rain. It was cold. But in looking back, we realized very quickly that was our best day. We sang songs in the rain and told stories in the rain. And uh, you know, ended up being a great day. That's awesome. We had the opposite experience this past summer. It was the historic heat wave when we were there. And so... Oh, yeah. There were forest fires and all that. Yeah, it was 104 to 106 degrees oh, as we moved yeah. through this stage, 42 to 44 Celsius, something like that. So it was scorching. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, rain or shine, cool or heat, you figure out how to adjust. And I think that that's one of the really satisfying things that you learn is that the conditions don't have to shape the mood. No, not at all. And I was in great company. I was with these two women that we've walked together before. Mostly we speak in French. These days I speak a fair amount of French. Don't always know what's going on, but 
it immerses you in a different world. Did you speak much French before you set out on the Chemin? No, I had studied it in high school and college, but that was too far before. Didn't use it. So I've, I've learned it more recently. When I first got on the Chemin in 18, I just knew very little. And I think I didn't really understand Google Translate at the time. Now I use it daily. I use it a lot. But, you know, it was okay. In fact, these two women that I ended up walking with, we've walked three times now. And Maurice, who's Swiss, and Josette, who's Belgian. They kind of took me under their wing because they said my French was so terrible, I wasn't going to be able to find a place to stay or anything to eat. I didn't know what had happened. I just all of a sudden realized I was walking with these two really amazing people and, uh, you know, walked the rest of the way with them. And then we did the Sele loop the next year, the C651. Yeah. That is pure magic. It's amazing. I met several pilgrims on this. One was a young Swiss woman, another French guy. That was typical. The French guy looked like he's maybe 30. He had some nice gear, but he was camping. I asked him, why, why are you walking the trail? He said, he was from Dijon, uh, Jeffrey. He said, I, I lost my job, so I had time, and I had a little money saved up, and I wanted to change my life. I heard the same thing from the young Swiss woman. She didn't say that about her job, but I wanted to change my life. I've heard that four, five times on the trail, Yeah, and uh, that always gets me. You want to change your life, get a backpack, hit the trail. That's awesome. I got a picture with it, but I didn't get his contact. Because these people were going all the way to Santiago. They had time. They didn't have a lot of money. He was camping. We were staying in a really nice Ajit. And he was, oh, we didn't know this at the time. Found out the next day. He was across the street on the porch of a tiny old chapel, sleeping on the porch. And we were having this fabulous dinner, you know, in the Ajit. I think you were all probably pretty happy. That's the nice thing, right? Well, from Miramont, it's another eight or nine kilometers to where you spent the night in Pimbo. Pimbo is is actually up on the hill a little bit. So you can see the big stone church up on the hill. And then, you know, it's a good little workout getting back up out of the corn and into Pimbo. There's kind of one central jeet in Pimbo, the jeet communal that also runs the cafe in the center. We stayed in at a place that was out in the country. It was a chambre d'hôte. We were the only walkers. There was full house. Everybody else was just tourists, French tourists. That was the day it had rained so hard all day. They had a, they called it a chalet. It was a little shack up the hill from the main house. And they took us up there and picked us up for dinner because it's a hundred yards down the hill. They picked us up and drove us down to the Jeet for dinner with all these people that were really curious about who are these people that showed up in rain gear with backpacks. Wow. So it was more of a tourist place. There was an old mill in that town. I don't know, Amulen, but they were out of town. It was a hunter's cabin, really. It's not great, but you know, it was good company. The thing I like about Pimbo, the church feels old. Obviously, all the churches or many of the churches along the route are older than anything that we have here in North America, structurally speaking. But the designs on the front of the church on the tympanum, they're these swirling motifs. Yeah, they, they make no sense. <laughs> you have to have those interpreted. The interpretation at Conk is amazing. Mm -hmm. With the lights, yes, the color to it, and then for Jacques or somebody explaining it, that's amazing. The more you walk, the more you learn what you're missing, how to look at things differently, how to see more. Right. It is a process. I hope someday to rewalk Camino Frances, it'd be a different experience, I know, to see how I would see it differently. Because when I walked the first time, you know, I was crazy. My brain was full trying to comprehend. In, in France, my brain was not full. 
because I'd already walked a couple other places. I walked to Portugal for that, and I was able, uh, more able to enjoy the moment. And even the hills, you know, you look at the hill and you think, okay, here we go. You see a limestone cliff up, it's 500 feet tall. You head to straight forward, you think, we're going to go up that, aren't we? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> That's the 651, really, those limestone cliffs. Yes, you are. You're going over that. <laughs> and then right back down and then right back up. When you're first on the trail and you're, you know, you're not in as great a shape, those are a problem later. You know, you're just going to power over it and keep going. It's going to be okay. The other thing about Pimbo is it's possible to have seen the Pyrenees by this point. You may have seen it for days, but this is another one of those vantage points perched on this hill overlooking flat corn country, where if you're fortunate enough to have a clear day, you're going to have an awesome view of the Pyrenees. Yeah, we had some really incredible views in there. So we continue on. It's another seven or eight kilometers onward to Arzak, Araziget which is the biggest town that you encounter after air. 34 kilometers, now you're getting back into a town, has an actual supermarket, has a carrefour, has two fairly large plazas, a little unusually shaped, but bigger than what you have been walking through out in the valley. And I guess you would have hit it pretty early in the morning. Arsak, well, I don't know. Look at photos. <laughs> I'm laughing, Robert, because I have stayed in Arzak, I don't know, three times. Yeah. You know, no disrespect to Arzak. It's a fairly unremarkable place. Even the church is kind of crammed off in the corner. I don't know if anybody actually goes to the church when they're walking through. It's out of sight, out of mind, and not terribly impressive, at least in comparison to the kinds of churches you're used to encountering along the route. It's big and it has a supermarket, but I don't think that people are snapping a lot of photos. But what I do most appreciate about Arzak that we really did enjoy this last summer in the middle of the heat wave is it's just a very short descent from Arzak and there is a lake beneath you, the Lac de Arzak, and it is fantastic for swimming. A lot of people will stay in Arzak. It has a very affordable communal jeet. But if they don't know what's ahead, they don't realize that a five minute walk would bring them to an excellent swimming experience. Mm. Yeah, I haven't been swimming on that. You know, the problem is it's not taking your shoes off. It's putting them back on again. <laughs> With wet feet, you're trying to get those socks up. Uh, well, and especially if you have to walk more, you know, you've, you've just softened all that skin on your feet to then rub off as you start walking. It's very much a good end of day activity, not so much a mid hike or especially mid morning as would have been your situation. Yes. So that's the first stage. Air sur Ladur, Arzak, 34 kilometers. Second stage is a tick shorter, still longer than what a lot of people would want to do. Arzak to Artes de Bern, about 30 kilometers. Heading out of Arzak, again, you go past the lake, you go up into the woods, you get some time in the trees now for a little bit. It's a day of a ton of tiny, tiny villages all in a row. It's one of those days where like every few kilometers, it seems, you're passing through a new place. Louvigny, Fichu, Rumiu, La Roule, Uzan. Geustarzak, Pomp. There's a lot of small villages in the section. Yeah. Pomp, where we stayed. Is it in that section that there's that Donativo fruit stand with an umbrella out in the forest, just kind of in the forest by itself? I think so. There's always fresh fruit there, too. A lovely thing to come across. Yeah. Some cherries, some apricots, grapes. Of course, I've been walking in August, September quite a bit. And that's when things are ripe. That's when you pick figs off of trees along the trail. Yeah. And palms. 
and cherries and uh, of course berries. My trip leader was very disappointed that none of the figs were ripe when we were walking in July this past year. So yeah, one more month makes a big difference there. I remember where that tree was, but I, I took a nap under a fig tree and I woke <laughs> up and I looked up and there was a ripe fig right over my head. <laughs> it was a staff. This along the trail. <laughs> Nobody in particular owned that tree, I don't think. So I helped myself to a few figs. Fresh figs are hard to come by. Yeah. And that's bed and breakfast. That's full service right there. So <laughs> <laughs> you pick the right spot for a nap. Anything else about the villages or about the walk through this section? We stayed in Pomp. We had to wait an hour for the Jeet to open. There's a Jeet Comunal in the sports center, which was quite nice. Facility was quite nice. There had said had several buildings. One of them was a gym, and that's where we ate. We ate on the gym floor. They had tables, folding tables. They cooked the meal right there. There was a kitchen right adjacent to that gym, and it was pilgrim food. It was chicken stew. You know, it was pilgrim food always hits the spot. Yeah. You know, it was, it was awesome. Nothing fancy about it at all. Chicken and rice, I think, was basically it with some bread, wine. Sometimes what we do, what we've done uh, is we got the words to the... What's the French pilgrim song? Ultrea? Ultrea, right. And we would get everybody, we'd tell everybody, okay, find the words, and they'd get their smartphones on, they'd find it, and we'd, we'd made everybody sing that. It's the pregame song for Conk that you just brought to every single Jeet afterward? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that was fun. The couple across from me, he was approaching 30, they were, and he had done all the work for his PhD in biology, and his thesis was on the thickness of tree bark. He didn't say much, but he had a girlfriend and he said he had three months before he could defend this. He'd done all the paperwork, everything was done, but he had just to wait. So he decided to walk the Camino. And his girlfriend, she was, apparently she worked at the college and she said, well, I'm going with you. And she quit her job and went with him. And 10 days in, this is what she told me, that he asked her to marry him. And she said, I'll give you my answer when we get to Santiago. <laughs> I thought, that's a savvy chick there. <laughs> Another one, I wish I knew how it came out. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. The lodging there was really good. And the people who were running the thing, they just all showed up and cooked this big meal and very friendly, happy, happy, happy. They were happy people. I've never spent the night in Pomp. But I, I have gone to the small grocery store there, which I think has like a classic car parked inside as part of the grocery store. <laughs> it's an odd little place, but it's entirely oriented around pilgrims. Lots of small sizes of things. The one place that you can buy some groceries along this otherwise very long stage. So a very friendly town for pilgrims in that regard. The other thing that stands out to me this last time around, I walk with high schoolers and we sometimes do strange things. and. My co-leader was really excited about having a night where we would camp. We didn't pack tents or anything, just sleep outside. And I discovered that just after Arzac, there is a place called Camp Hostel, where two people, two young French people, bought a plot of land. And then they put some, some tents out for pilgrims to come and sleep in the tents. And then they cook dinner for you. They can comfortably accommodate six or seven. Hmm. And we were 14. So I emailed them ahead of time and I said, hey, how do you feel about absorbing 14 Americans, including 11 teenage Americans? And Tony said, bring it on. We'll, we'll make it work. And so we were basically double the size of any group he had ever hosted there. We crammed into the tents. He didn't have enough mats, so he like got some hay 
and push the hay in under the surface of the tent so there'd be a little bit of cushion. And the thing that the students loved more than anything else about the experience is the outdoor shower, which was actually a garden hose mm -hmm. with a, a nozzle on it that had various spray settings, which they thought was absolutely delightful. So the shower with the garden hose was the highlight of their experience. Yeah. But it just speaks again, I think, to you're talking about having dinner on a gym floor. Oh, yeah. And I'm talking about sleeping on top of a pseudo straw mattress sitting on tree stumps as, around a, a modified table as we ate the dinner that was prepared for us. It's almost like the height of luxury. It's the best accommodation you could hope for. Yeah, for kids, that unpredictable kind of experience, I think is valuable to them. They're probably growing up going to holiday inns, you know, and, <laughs> and dad's driving the car and it's predictable and, you know, the terrible restaurant and all that. And, and here's something completely wild and crazy out of you find that all the time. You find things you could not possibly have imagined. Mm -hmm. That's one of the fun things about it. You never know what's around the next corner. You'll be surprised. Your frame of reference is constantly being shoved in a new direction. And then interactions with local people that you don't expect. Mm -hmm. And people come up to you and talk to you. And we were walking through a village, me and Joe said, somewhere in there. And uh, leaving the village on the way out was a little bench and I had to retie a shoe. Above this bench, there were all these flowering vines coming down behind the bench. It was really pretty. And then about six, seven feet up, there was a big window. And there was an older woman sitting in the window, in a chair in the window. And of course, my girlfriend speaks French. So they had a conversation through the window while I was tying my shoes. And those kind of things are special. The seemingly random conversations that are special. My students constantly think about the fact that they would never talk to strangers yes. in the U.S., Yes. And you talk to every stranger in France. Especially pilgrims, you know. You can't avoid it, yeah. It just changes the way you interact with the world around you so fundamentally. It does. It's changed it forever. You know, I walked the California Mission Trail, walked three weeks of it in May of 21. It was a, quite a wild experience. San Diego to Santa Barbara with three other people and not a random group, semi-random group of people. And we stayed with people in L.A. We stayed in people's houses. The whole time. And they were all Camino people, of course. They were all <laughs> Camino people because that's what Camino people are like. You need a place to stay. Some of us are on the floor. Some of us are on beds. Camino people are open, friendly, trusting, and not afraid. Not afraid of strangers. Yeah. It's an awesome thing. It doesn't matter what country people are from. And of course, in France, they're mostly from France. Yeah. Not, not entirely. A lot of Germans, but mostly France. I think 85% of people on that trail are French. That's what I read one time. It's a large number. And of course, you and I were both on it in 2021. And that was just the gradual reopening of COVID. The Australians weren't back yet. Right. Others were very slow in coming back. So yeah. that was a particularly French-heavy year. Yeah. As soon as the French president announced that Americans with a vaccination could come to France, I bought a ticket a couple <laughs> days later. I said, I'm coming. I'm coming. And I'm coming as quick as I can. All along that walk, I was the first American that French people yes. had seen in a very long yes. time. Yeah. You're not going to meet a lot of Americans on the trail anyway. No. And, you know, I see enough Americans. <laughs> yes. Right. right. I'm there for something different. So we've made it 21 kilometers into the stage when we get to Pomp, where you spent the night. And from there, it's another nine kilometers or so to Artes de Bern. Yeah. You have a good uphill going into Artes de Baron. It's one of the noticeable ascents in this stretch. 
And along the way, you go past a very small chapel that's like right when you get to the top of the ridge line, Chapelle de Cobin. And then you have your final approach to Artes de Bern. What do you recall from this area? <laughs> you know, I should look, I probably have a picture of that chapel. And this is tricky, right? Like the first stop in the morning. So the chapel, it's like an oval almost, or a rectangle, somewhere in there, rectangle with the sides rounded off. What has always stuck in my memory is you come up upon it, and it's on a very small raise above the road. And you come into it from the side door. And if you come to it when it's open, that side door will be open. And then the side door on the other side will be open. And you will see the view down through the other side of the valley through these two open doors of the chapel before you even enter. So it is that fascinating view of the openness, the flow going through this chapel that stands out to me. Is that at the edge of a, a little park? Yeah. Between the highway and the park? Yeah, I remember I got a stamp there. There was a little lady doing stamps. Nice. It's a really nice place for a break. You've just finished the uphill. There's a table outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. After you make your way through Artes de Baron, and Artes de Baron is the second town of some size in this stretch, so not quite as big as Arzac, but bigger than the other places that you have passed through in here. It's famous among some pilgrims because one of the big jeets in the town is run by the baker. You're not actually staying in the bakery. The jeet is in a different building, but you certainly benefit when the baker is your host. No, I'm thinking of a different bakery, a different jeet <laughs> with a bakery next to it. You can't go wrong. Although, you know, that, that smell will wake you up in the morning. It'll get you moving. I don't know what they do. I don't know how they do it with bread <laughs> in France. I don't understand. I've not had a baguette outside of that part of Europe that was anywhere near in, in the rest of the world, wherever. They're, I don't know what the difference is, but they're amazing there. You won't find a bad one. No. And they're, you know, a dollar and a half to two dollars. Yeah. It's uncanny. And that is one of the beautiful things is just the frequency with which you can hope to encounter bakeries as you walk. We'd stop a, a lot of mornings at seven. The bakery would open at seven and we'd go to the bakery right after seven because we'd leave a little early-ish and get a sandwich. Yeah. And they just, you know, slice it and put butter and cheese. And you put it in your pack, you stick that sucker in your pack and off you go. I always felt kind of like it was really cool to walk out of town with a baguette sticking in your pack. <laughs> Not a rifle, baguette. A baguette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does indicate some level of determination, I think. And they taste awfully, awfully good uh, beside the trail. They're very simple sandwiches. We stopped at it somewhere along there. We had a, the lunch. The only food was a jeet along the way, and they'd make you a sandwich if you called in advance. Mm. She called the day before, and so she had to order in a little extra bread. This is just jeet along the trail, and she fixed us. And she said, well, I can make you ham or cheese. Or I could make you an omelet with grilled onions. And we all put our hands up. <laughs> it was like, I don't know, three or four egg omelet with grilled onions and a baguette. That sounds awesome. Man, was that good. Yeah. Artes de Baron, they still have that bakery. So you can look forward to getting a sandwich there. The tougher thing that's true in Artes and has happened now in a couple of other villages along the way is there used to be a central grocery store in Artes. And it's closed. It just didn't uh -huh. get enough business. And it's been replaced with a larger carrefour. But it's two kilometers outside the center, downhill. It's a lot of work. Yeah. 
it was especially a lot of work when it was 44 degrees or whatever it was. And I uh, went hustling down to buy stuff for us to make dinner. That was a hot walk. So I don't recommend it and probably best to go with whatever the Jeet can prepare for you while you're there. Yeah, I've had some of the most amazing meals in Jeet's. And it doesn't matter if it's fabulous, fancy food and a five-course meal or if it's something very basic, you know, and just uh, pilgrim food. It always is uh, wonderful. It's the lovely combination of, of hunger, which makes things taste better, and then just that attention to ingredients. It's, as you said, simplicity. They do a lot of farm-to-table there because that's how they live more than we do. It's not everything's at farm to table, but they do it naturally because they got the farm right. They've got the, veg, the garden. A lot of times what we'd ask people where they got vegetables. Well, my neighbor, that's that patch right over there. My neighbor grows them. <laughs> and the liquor, sometimes they give you an aperitif, you know, with some liquor in it. It always comes in a clear bottle with a cork in top and no label. And I, I asked him, I said, what, what is this? He said, it's made from plums. My neighbor makes it. You end up with quite a bit of that. There's a little thimble, you know, and a toast and all that. Yeah, that relationship with food is fundamentally different than what we typically encounter here in the U.S. Yeah, I had, I don't understand this, but I think there's something to it. So we're walking into um, this place up a big hill across the river. Oh, the first day out of uh, Moisac. Ovilar, the Petit Gren. Yeah, that was fabulous. And all the way I'm thinking about, about that uh, gazpacho. I've only had gazpacho in my life once. So this whole afternoon, I'm thinking, man, I want some gazpacho. And I, I don't know, why am I thinking this? And we get there at the table for dinner. There were 15 of us at dinner in her basement. It was really cool, this cool brick basement. And there's this big bowl of homemade gazpacho. You just made it. It was amazing. <laughs> I got the last tiny. We had to, we all got seconds. And then I got a little bit of thirds on it. Man. You manifested it. You made it I happen. Made, I made that happen. Yeah. <laughs> Well, one other thing to say about Artez is just that it's another one of those spots where on a clear day, the Pyrenees, they're just getting bigger all the time. And I recommend for people, if you go to the church there, go around behind the church. It's one mm. of the best viewpoints you could hope for to see the Pyrenees if you're fortunate mm -hmm. enough to get clear skies. But we'll carry on because your stopping point is a little bit further. And we head now into the third section. So Artez de Bern to Navarrens, about 32 kilometers and you stayed about nine kilometers into this walk in Maslach. Mm -hmm. So it's a descent through some trees and then ultimately onward into the valley and into Maslach. What do you remember from that, the ending of that day for you? So it was a kind of a middle-class town. We found lunch at a convenience store, basically, that, was, that had a little bit of food. It's kind of tucked away back there. Yes. You know, you wouldn't think they really had food. These little tables up against the wall. <laughs> And they said our jeet was closed. We, we told them where we were going, and they said, well, it's not open. Oh. No, man, we're in trouble. So, you know, looked at, did we get a phone message or an email? Yeah, we had a confirmation a month before. You know, we spent some time there worrying about that. <laughs> really middle-class kind of place, not touristy in the least. We're the only tourists there. Didn't see any other walkers. And so we found the jeet. was only a block or two away from that. And the most lovely person, she'd been a Jeet host for 12 years or 14 years. She said that most people don't last that long. A very, very nice person. And she had not been open much, but she took that reservation and decided she would have some pilgrims. And there were four of us there. She made this fabulous dinner. It was a house with a sleeping room that, that the young Swiss woman was with us. Then with Josette Emery and I. So it was, it was pretty quiet, peaceful evening. 
but she gave us enough food to fix lunch for the next day. We had lunch when we left. That was good. She didn't stay there. And she said, this is breakfast and take it all. And that was nice. Because a lot of times breakfast is you really, really get tired of bread. Bread and jam. Bread and jam. Bread and jam. I told the host that we stayed in Moisac, La Petite Lumiere, really nice host. That was a really fun place to stay. And I said something at dinner. I don't know, just on the side. I didn't wasn't speaking to her directly. So I don't think I can handle bread again in the morning for breakfast. <laughs> and I got there and, and she made me an omelet. Wow. Yeah, that was a cool place. She was cool. She was fun. She loved it. Yeah, she loved being a host. So yeah, Maslach is kind of an odd village. And the approach into Maslach is probably one of the less appealing bits of walking along the Via Podiensis. You have to work your way around a pretty busy roundabout that's kind of a small highway. And then you're crossing a bigger highway and then you're crossing train tracks and then you're crossing a river. And if you're getting that at the end of the day, it can be pretty hot in that stretch. But otherwise, it does offer at least the small grocery store where they'll prepare some food for you if you can find it tucked away in the the small streets there. Yeah, we didn't go anywhere else in the town. That's all I remember is that place in the Jeet, which was only a block away. Those are the highlights. So <laughs> that's about nine kilometers into this walk. This walk's kind of nice because it breaks up pretty well into thirds. You have Maslach at first, and then the second third brings you into Sovelad, which is you go up into the trees while well, you're in the corn for a while. You go up into the trees, and then you have a nice little descent into what used to be an abbey, and from which the old church still survives, along with a pilgrim jeet cafe there in, in Sauvillade. Did you take a break there? Yes. Yeah, we did. And we actually got something to eat and drink there at that little, whatever it was. There was one person that was wandering around cleaning and stuff. They came over and helped us get something. To eat. Maybe it was just a drink. I don't know. <laughs> it's a nice place. They take a lot of pride in the history of the church. They even have a video history that yes. you can play in the church itself. Yes. Yeah, we watched the video history we did. Yeah, it's kind of weird because there's almost nobody there. It's this mm -hmm. huge, huge building in this huge cavernous church and, and nobody around. Yeah. And, and not much traffic on the road right beside it. It's all very quiet, yeah. There were enough picnic tables by that, whatever the cafe was. The cafe was not open. Apparently, sometimes of the year they have more people. Because they were set up to handle a lot of people. Maybe it's a weekend place or something. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you, every time I've been there, it's been silent. Very appealing in its own way. I've never spent the night there, but I think I would like it. It's one of those places I would like to come back to and try to time a landing there differently. The last stretch is quite wooded. There's the Maritime Forest that you walk through in this last stretch between Sauvillad and Navarrense. So it's Probably the most heavily treed part of the Chemin for a week. I don't know, but it's notable. What do you remember? Are there cuckoos in that forest? There might be. Seems like we heard cuckoos in that forest. I've heard them in Spain, but I think I heard them there too. They're related to the roadrunners here, but roadrunners don't have a voice. Okay. They look very much like roadrunners. They're close, but they don't have but they have the, they have that voice. It has one of the strangest most interesting rest stops, pilgrim rest stops, easy to miss. It's off to the left as you're walking through the trees. All along this stretch, you'll periodically see messages on chalkboards. Yes. Yeah, I know you're talking about the, it's a kind of a 
Donativo sort of rest area. Yeah, with coffee pot, I think. And yeah, couch in the trees. We read every one of those in that little space. We read every one of those messages. And I translated them all because they didn't all make sense to me. It's cool. And it's all like all of those chalkboards are from the Jeet Alchemist, which is in Navarrense. So the host there has left them along the trail in different places. And yeah, it's covered in them in that rest stop. I asked, I wrote him an email. Did you buy his cards? Le Jute de Dia? Yes. A little set of cards. So my girlfriend and I, we she bought a set of those and we read those. We picked one each day in December, January and part of February. And we would read it and discuss it. You know, what we think about that? And I found in there in the instructions, I found an email address. So I wrote them because I thought I would find those in the book, The Alchemist. Oh. It had just, I read The Alchemist in January. And those weren't in there. <laughs> Surely they took those from a book. No, he said they were all his own ideas. And he wrote me back and said that. And so we stayed in the, we first got into town. That's with the walls. And then there was a huge outdoor restaurant operation that they were winding down and they, they didn't offer us much. I think we got a drink and that was it. And then we wandered into town to find another place that had something to offer on a kind of a commercial street with a pharmacy across. And we, we got something to eat, got lunch there. Because they, they weren't doing anything at the other place anymore. But that Gite Alchemist, that was a really interesting stay. Yeah, so you stayed there. Yeah, and we all sat around the fire in the living room on sofas to eat dinner. Balanced the plates on our laps. It was very different. It was very congenial. Food was fine. It was, wasn't special, but there was something special about that place. Their attitude was special. It's like staying in an art gallery. Yes. Yeah, I've got some good pictures of that art. Yeah. It's for me right up there with the Chapelle d'Ursuline in terms of some of the most memorable decor setting, the environment within the space is impressive. Yeah, I remember that well. They were smoking <laughs> outside. <laughs> all the staff, they're all smoking, which always throws me off a little bit. <laughs> we got less of that with the high schoolers. Maybe they modified a little bit. Let's take a step back, though, because we jumped into Navarrense. For people who don't know Navarrense, walk them through the experience of arriving there and what it's like. These walls are intact. They're probably 20, 20, 25 feet tall, dark stone walls around the city. And you, you go through them. It's not a gate anymore, but it probably was at one point a gate. And then when we wandered around the old town, you can climb up onto those walls mm -hmm. and look down on the river. And that's really interesting because you can imagine yourself being in the 1500s there, looking down on this river from these walls. I'm sure they've rebuilt the walls because a lot of those things turned into power rocks. This was pretty good. Yeah, it's in really good shape. They're huge, too. It was substantially large on top of those walls were really something. And then down below, there's the two or three pilgrims. A statue, I think they're bronzes, of some pilgrims. So, of course, we got a picture, a selfie with them, with the pilgrims. We bought some uh, jewelry. In the base of that wall, there was a little store, mm. a little jewelry store. We bought some homemade jewelry. It's a very pilgrim-friendly town. They host a gathering for all of the pilgrims every night with drinks. Oh, we went. To, I went to that. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. They had some sweet white wine. They passed around little cups of it. And there was a plate with, with parts in the church. They, you, mm -hmm. People had parts to read. Yes. I was touched that these pilgrims, the local pilgrims, would show up and do this thing. Every night. Every night. It's like five o'clock or something. And the priest came in into the little reception room and had a cup of wine with us. 
think there were Dixie cups or something. There was something <laughs> really cheap. Yeah. He was friendly and welcoming. And, and I was the only American. And I think my other friends weren't there. Most of the time, I was the only American anywhere. Yep. People are curious about Americans. And when they find out you're an American, well, I, I tell them I'm from Texas because they know tech. They know what Texas is. Often they, they know someone who has been to Texas or um, in the U.S., but Texas, but they'll say, oh, do you know so-and-so? He moved there and you know, lives in Dallas. And, uh, <laughs> but they, they're very interested in Americans. And I, I thought always the people I've met in France were, except for Paris, which is a whole other thing, are helpful, friendly, kind people. Yeah. And the people say, well, you got to speak French. Well, I try to speak French several times, making reservations. I would say it in French, not very good French. My accent's terrible. I know what the words are, but they would say, would you like to continue this conversation <laughs> in English? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, similar story for me, except I think my French is far more meager than yours. And yeah, no issues. This girlfriend and I, uh, we've communicated in French almost entirely. There's a lot of Google Translate in it, but I've learned a great deal. One of the, the difficulties with French is the pronunciation. Yeah. So you can see a word, and when they say the word, sometimes it doesn't look like that word, <laughs> but it is because the pronunciation is just the tricky part. Yeah. It's the same when I say a word. If I show them the word, oh, yeah, I don't know what that word is, but you didn't say that. <laughs> well, I thought I did. I've long thought that more people who are walking the Camino Frances should think about starting in Navarrense, you know, like come. Not that far away, yeah. 65 kilometers walking between Navarrense and Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port. It's flatter. There's certainly some hills in this last few stages, but a chance to warm up the legs, get past jet lag before crossing the Pyrenees. The craziness. The craziness of the Camino Frances. I remember very well, it was 2017 in May, my first few days on that, and I had no idea which way was up. Yeah. Just flying in the jet and then living in another language and trying to understand this system. And a lot of people helped me along the way. They showed me what to do. I had no idea. And then all of a sudden, you're to 300 pilgrims. Whereas in Navarrance, you might see five or 10 in a day. Yeah. So a chance to settle in in a much calmer area, get your legs under you. Place with really good food, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's some good places to stop over these next few days. I think the Alchemist, the Jeet Alchemist was one of the best Jeet's days that I've had. I, I put it in the top five of Jeet's days. Uh, Le Petit Grain à l'Avillard is one of them too. Robert, thanks for joining me to talk about Air Sur Le Dour to Navarrense. It feels like we talked about the route, but we also got to riff on all kinds of different things related to the experience of being there. And It's a magical place. It's a lot of fun. I think it's just pure magic. I've been on that trail three times, parts of it, not the whole thing, three times. And it's magic. Rachel Kors, George Pritchard, Willow Whalen Stewart. Thanks for speaking with me. We're going to talk about the last three stages of the Via Bodiensis and then some bigger picture stuff. So we're looking at the last part of the walk from Navarrense to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, which depending on how people choose to walk it is somewhere between 60 and 70 kilometers. So we did the longest version of that possible. So about 70 kilometers. People can do some shortcuts if they prefer. 
And we're going to go through each of these last three stages one at a time and see what on earth you all remember, what, 11 months afterward. We are going to pick it up in Navarrens. And so let's just start there in that town. What stands out to the three of you from our overnight in Navarrens and then that morning leaving there? Something that I remember is in that town. This is just a very specific thing that I remember, but each shop, the owner had like a character of themselves on the front. I remember one guy was like holding a pig because I think it was a butcher shop. And yeah, that's just something that sticks out of my mind. It's a good one. I remember we went like really slowly out of town that morning. We stayed at the bakery to wait for it to open and then it just didn't. So then we wait and like went on a longer path to another coffee shop and that also didn't open. I just remember being super slow. Like we didn't really have a rush. It's an unusual combination of days for us because it was like 19 kilometers on this day, 19 kilometers the next day, and there's no food on this walk. So we were trying to get something. We made that extra detour leaving town too to try to find something open, but we were thwarted on both fronts. Willa? I remember the like fortress. We were like went and ate a snack because we came in in shifts. And I remember we went and ate a snack like up on the wall. And there was overlooking like the river. And then we went and swam. Well, some of us swam. It wasn't the best swimming, but you could swim in the river. And then there was apparently a pool, I think, that we didn't go to. But there was like a big fight about whether to go swim in the river or the pool. And that was very exciting, I remember. Was it just too much walking to go to the pool? Was that the issue? Yeah. And people were confused about whether it was open. It was back by the car for, I think, like outside the city walls. So it was just too much work. Yeah. Well, it's, as we said, 19 kilometers leaving Navarrens. You pass through the big old town walls and there's not a ton that's remarkable or noteworthy about this little walk, 19 kilometers. And I'm wondering what you remember, if anything, from that journey. The pate factory? The pate factory. That is the most notable thing, I think. Yeah. Describe what's going on there. It's kind of just like a big warehouse with a little tent in the front with like some benches and there's cans set up where you could try a bunch of pate. And I remember I tried Hannah's wild boar pate and I did not like it, but I'm proud of myself for trying it. And then there was that great dog that was very friendly. Yeah, I remember wanting to eat the pate prior to getting there and like saving my stomach. And then once I got there, I didn't eat it because it did not seem appealing yeah same well you were the pickiest eaters it smells a little bit like cat food tins tastes like it (laughs) even the wild boar tastes like cat food yeah that's rough yeah so yeah we were not too thrilled by the the options but other people might be and it is a nice gesture by them to have a place for pilgrims to sit down and a lot of different small varieties of pate for like two euros a can it's a nice gesture american teenagers probably aren't the primary audience for pate so others may enjoy it more that's like seven kilometers into the walk does anything else stand out to you between there and the end of the walk i cannot remember anything i just remember like 
our end point just kind of appeared out of nowhere and we were like oh we're we're here and there was a dog that came barking that's like the only thing I wrote in my journal <laughs> that day I remember as we arrived at the sheet there was like a steep downhill and you had to turn off to the like it was right before the town so you had to not go into the town and I remember you hammering that into our heads wasn't that don't go in the town the day that Owen just took a nap on the side of the trail and we didn't see him for like four hours. <laughs> yep. You know, it was a short walk. What were we going to do? Get to the Jeet super early. So we were trying to burn time however we could. We also took a super long break in the only little village along the walk, Lichos, where there's a pilgrim rest stop that's right by a creek, just sort of a grassy yard, a tent. So we hung out there for, God, a half hour just because it was the only option. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Owen took a nap and we still got to our jeet outrageously early. I remember there was a lot of pavement walking too on that day. I feel like we were either like on the side of a road or like walking on some smaller road or pavement area. There's a little bit of hills early on, nice little up and down into the trees. But yeah, after that, it's not an especially noteworthy walk. But fortunately, on the bright side, there is a noteworthy jeet at the end of it. And Lord knows we spent plenty of hours there. So we were staying in Aru at Ferrum Bohotegi that night. So let's fast forward to that. I think the first thing that jumps out is just how much money we probably spent in their little grocery. Yeah. The Jeet has its own little grocery, which is nice because there's nothing else on this walk. So if you were walking through Aru, it's 19 kilometers getting here. There's nothing between Navarrense and here. And so even if you're not staying at the Jeet, there's the chance to come in and, and buy a sandwich, buy something from their little shop. What do you recall from our time there? I remember the dinner. It was good food. And they also did the, one of the kids did a magic show. And there was some other like small performances going on. That was super cool. I think this for me was like our most memorable Jeet night. Because we had the dinner entertainment. So we had the kid doing the magic show. And I think Malcolm also sang. And then we did the moo off <laughs> and we did two deck presidents with the whole group, which got really heated. And, and whose toes are those comment readout was there too. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. So we have to explain a couple of these things. George, do you want to explain exactly what a moo off is? I would be happy to. So essentially your group goes in a circle on all fours. And each person takes turn mooing in various cadences. And if you laugh, then you are eliminated from the circle. And the last cow standing wins. The kind of high quality educational experience that we aim for on the trip. <laughs> and then Willa, what exactly is whose toes are those? Um, this was a kind of moment that was we were removed from social media and forgot some norms <laughs> so i forget exactly which time we did it, but we took photos of our toes which don't look especially pleasant so there were like blisters and all that good stuff and posted them to our pilgrimage instagram and we numbered them and we had our parents and friends like guess whose toes are those and so then at this g we read out the comments from our parents and friends and they were Certainly interesting. 
a lot of parents, it turns out, can't recognize their own children's toes. Well, after four weeks walking on them, they might look very different, so. Might be true. Willa, do you have any other thoughts or reflections on Aru? I remember, well, Violet tried to steal the piggy bank where you would put your buddy. She didn't try that hard, to be clear. <laughs> Let's not besmirch Violet. She just wanted to buy it. Yes. So that was interesting. It was really good food. I remember we had like a full meal. The kids were the ones serving us. It was like a full family run jeet. It was very cute. I remember the cows being right next to the jeet. There was a little like grassy area behind the jeet. And then behind that was all like cow pastures. Yeah, I mean, it's a fully operating farm for sure. It's a really nice spot. It's famous among pilgrims and that fame is well-earned as you all have talked about. So that's the first stage, 19-ish kilometers from Navarrens to Aru. The next day is where people who are walking through this section have a ton of different options. I think the main version of the route is about 24 kilometers. It's possible to do it with a shortcut that makes it like 21.5 kilometers. Or you can do what we did, which is make it as long as possible. So 30.5 kilometers if you're going all the way to Ostabat, which is where this stage ends in terms of like how books are organized as our route to Ostabat, 30-ish kilometers. But we were just doing another 19 kilometers, detouring out to Saint Palais, where we spent the night. This walk is a little bit more interesting. A little bit. What do you recall about the walk from Aru to Saint Palais? I remember it getting more hilly, like the further we got towards Sampale. Um, yeah. It's hard. There are basically no towns along this walk, no villages, no cafes, no bakeries. The kinds of landmarks you would often think about just don't pop up. I remember sort of similar to walking into a rue, but there was some like viewpoints as you sort of descended into the town and you could sort of look out and I remember we were trying to guess like which is the town which one we were actually going to and I also remember we did a good amount of walking on pavement and on actual like roads and highways and we had to do some not like dodging of cars but just being aware of that yeah I spent the second half of this walk just cursing the people who had changed the route because now it follows the highway for a pretty long stretch. Most of the second half of this walk is basically following the highway into Saint Palais, which is not how it used to be. So I don't know why they did that, but it definitely makes the walk less enjoyable. Will, it just doesn't have anything to say about this walk at all. Absolutely nothing. I don't there's only even one point, I think, to get water on the walk. And that's where I just had a bunch of you dump your packs in the road and you detoured like, 400 meters to an old church with a fountain in the front. That's like the one stop that even stands out is when you all ran ahead to the barking dog in the church to get water and I stayed in the road. I think most of the group was having some sort of singing competition that I was out of earshot for, but there's a lot of noise when the bulk of the group arrived at that turning point. The barking dog really brought that back. I remember it now. There you go. It's a funny thing, like when people say, if you only had a few days to skip, what would you skip? Or if you needed to skip a few days on the Via Podiensis, where would you skip? It feels weird, but these are two pretty unremarkable days. It just doesn't seem right to skip the last 
few stages of the walk, but there's not as much going on between Navarrens and Saint-Palais. But the reason that when I take groups on this, we always detour to Saint-Palais is that at least it is a sizable town. It is a place that has a ton of services, a bit more going on. So what do you recall about where we spent the night in Saint-Palais? So this, I think, was sort of right on the outskirts of downtown, but it was pretty Mm -hmm. much in not the city, but the town, I guess. Mm -hmm. And we stayed upstairs. So there was sort of a garden out in front and it was maybe sort of connected to a church, sort of, or there's a church right next to the Jeet. We were all in one room. And then down to the left was a super nice garden and park area there was a cloister and then outside of that there was a play structure and a little gazebo that we ate dinner at yeah it was a nice area yes one of the bigger jeets almost more of like a spanish style albergue in terms of how it's laid out and as you say it's an old religious building and has a ton of ton of room for pilgrims what about the town itself saint palais I remember there just being like actual things like after the path, <laughs> there was like a bakery and there was things to do. There was a huge, I think it was a car for that was like kind of a trek, but there's a bunch of touristy shops too, which is not something we'd really, we hadn't really looked in tourist shops before then, but cause it was nearing the end. I remember the food cause I don't think our Jeet was open yet when we got there. I think we had to wait a few hours or so. So we stopped and all got food and walked around a whole bunch. It's a typical Basque town, so a lot of white buildings with red trim, green trim, as you walk around the center. So it's a pretty place and a market town. And as you say, a lot of stuff going on there. So that's the second of these last three stages. Because we'd given ourselves those two pretty easy days by our standards, so 19 kilometers back to back, We had a longer final walk into Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port than a lot of other people do. We had about 33 kilometers remaining. So that was about 11 kilometers to get to Ostabat, where other people would have spent the night before. And then we pushed on to Saint-Jean. And this is far and away the most interesting walk in this section, also the most challenging and strenuous. So we're leaving Saint-Palais. What do you recall? I recall it was Willow's birthday. That is true. Yeah, I was not woke up in my trip, but we had balloons on our bags. Well, some of them died pretty early, but we attempted to carry balloons on our bags for the entire walk. After we had initially just dumped them all on Willa and then woke her up surrounded by balloons. So uh, yeah, it was Willa's birthday. That is fun. And then we we started walking and we started walking uphill. Yeah. I think... I remember a lot of uphill. I wasn't a huge fan of uphill in general, but I honestly think this, the first third of this walk was one of my favorite sections of the whole trip because we went really high up to this one viewpoint with these rock tower formation things, like these pillars. I think they're wood, aren't they? They're like oak or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. But... (laughs) Yeah, we took a lot of photos up there and you could see everything. There was so much visibility from the top, just sprawling hills everywhere. And then we went way down and then way back up to basically the same type of viewpoint again. And it was really beautiful. I remember the second viewpoint had a little 
house thingy mabob. A chapel. I couldn't remember what it was, but I remember it was like kind of cloudy too. So like we could see the nearby hills and like what we were going to be walking. We couldn't see super far in the distance. I remember people running down the hill too, the one section of the hill at least. The first uphill had steps and then the second one had a really cool like rock formation that you walked up. And then I remember after, I think it was the second downhill was the conjoining of three different pilgrimage routes, right? Yeah. And I remember we sprinted down the hill and then we were like just waiting there for everyone. You all recall it perfectly. So there's the sculptures on Mont Saint-Sauveur. There is the Stelle de Gibraltar, which is where those different routes from Paris, Vézelay, and Le Puy all join up. And then the line back up to the Chapelle de Soyots, which has those marvelous views. So it's great. Two big uphills. The first one in particular is a, is a really good workout. The first real genuine uphill in quite a while and a good warm up for what's coming with the Pyrenees. And then we pushed on ultimately into Ostabat where we had a break. And the first time in three days, we actually had a cafe along the walk in the middle of the walk where we could stop for a break. I do not remember that town. There's two picnic benches on the right. It looks like you're visiting a house, but if you go in the door towards the back, it takes you into a very dark bar area. And then there's an adjacent little grocery that's attached to it. But the thing that sticks out to me the most is that there are a ton of cats. There are so many cats there just hanging out, waiting for pilgrims to show up with food. Yeah, I remember Laura tending to a lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they were all over the place. We didn't do much more in the town itself, but that was a place for a break. And after Osabat, there's still 22 kilometers to go. The thing about the route on this day is there's a highway, the D933. And then the route is just kind of following the highway. Sometimes it's on the right side of the highway. Then you cross the highway, end up on the left side of the highway. And you're passing basically parallel to it throughout most of this walk. And then our next break didn't come for quite a while, not for another 17-ish kilometers in Saint-Jean-de-Vue. Is there anything that you recall that sticks out in your memories as we walked from Ostabat to Saint-Jean-de-Vue? I definitely do remember being parallel to the highway. Mm -hmm. And I remember you definitely could see the highway and and hear it sometimes, but it did feel pretty separated. I remember it was sort of this forested tunnel a little bit on the right side and then I do remember like crossing back and forth a decent amount on the highway there were a bunch of farm animals right I remember there were like pigs sheep and they were really loud and the sheep would like follow you as you walked oh was this when all the sheep were like running towards us at one point yeah that was cool a lot of sheep Not a ton of other stuff going on there. There's one bakery that you have to go off route to get to. A few of us detoured to get there. Weren't especially thrilled with the options when we got there. And then we had to like highway walk back on the side of the highway. Yep. And you know, there's a small village, Gamarth, with a church. I think it was locked when we got there. So yeah, it's not the most exhilarating stretch of walking ever. Another reason to go to San Palais is to be able to have a really nice 10 kilometers heading into Ostabat. But then you get to Saint-Jean-de-Vue, and I think a few of us got there in time before the grocery store shut down. 
And then others strolled in a little bit later, but it was basically the last break where we were all hanging out until uh, we made the last push to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. I remember in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, we went, the first stop we stopped at was the Office of Tourism, and they thought that we were just starting our walk. They were trying to explain to us like the way markers and all this stuff, and we just walked for like over four weeks. It's a very small percentage of people who show up in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port having already walked. So we were very unusual at that point. We have arrived then. We've arrived in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. It stands out to a lot of people because it is their first stop on the Camino. It's the end point for a lot of people walking the Via Podiensis. What stands out to you about the village? I remember the church. It's kind of above the town. I think you're thinking of the fortress. Yeah, the fortress. The castle. Yeah. It was super cool, but it was really windy when we went there. But it, it was really cool to walk through the fortress and see it, like the town from above and such. I remember at least one road of the town was so touristy. I mean, there, each side of the street was just lined with shops. There was a ton of people walking around. And I definitely splurged a little bit in the town. Some of the shops got me a little bit. I remember like going to the fortress and I remember all the touristy shops. There were a bunch of berets that were bought in our group. People were splurging. I remember our jeet. It was like Italian, right? Yep. Yep. The amount of candy that they had waiting for you guys yeah. when you arrived. Like what? M&Ms and Snickers? Is that right? There was Twix as well. Yeah. Twix. They, they knew their audience. Yeah. <laughs> It's a strange feeling to get there and to have so many people around you just beginning and you're getting close to the ending. What was it like for you? Because, you know, we see pilgrims on the Via Podiensis. You get used to seeing pilgrims around you. But over those last couple of weeks on the Via Podiensis, you see maybe 20 pilgrims a day. And all of a sudden there's tons. What did you make of that? I remember being like kind of shocked because especially that walk we didn't really see anyone except there were like cars on the highway and then we get into town and I think we walked in on like the touristy road and there was just tons of people everywhere I was kind of unused to having to like walk around people so much because we still had to get to our jeet and such and I was like whoa this is really weird to see so many people again yeah it was sort of a blast from the past a little bit to remind me of the early towns and like Conk, where there was people and people in general, and there wasn't really a lot of people in the days before uh, Saint Jean Pierre de Pour. Yeah, it kind of just made me think back to like the start of our pilgrimage and like how we were very new and not really knowing what to expect. And then we get there, and there's all these pilgrims with new shoes and hiking poles and running around like, asking questions, trying to figure out where the Office of Tourism is, things like that. So that was definitely interesting. It kind of felt overwhelming, but at the same time, it was kind of like you knew that you had just basically walked 500 miles and they have 500 miles to go. So it wasn't. You were the grizzled old veterans at that point. Yes. So one of the challenges that I always have when I take students on this route is trying to figure out where to end. Because obviously we don't have time to go to Santiago. If you're walking to Santiago or to Rome, you don't have to think about the end point. Like the end point is obvious. On this we have to make a decision. 
And so people who are walking the Via Podiensis, they might be choosing between a few different options. One might be to stop in Saint-Jean, one might be to stop in Roncevalle, and a third is what we did, which is walk to Pamplona, which has the advantage of making the transportation out very simple. If you had to pick a natural endpoint, if you had to give someone advice on like, where, where's best to break this walk, hopefully with the idea that you'd return and carry it forward someday, what would you suggest makes the best stopping point for this pilgrimage? Saint-Jean, Roncevalle, or Pamplona? I mean, I think they all have reasons for why you would stop there. I mean, Saint-Jean is the last French town. So if you think about it, it's a walk in France, that makes sense. And then Roncevalle is sort of, you know, on the Pyrenees, it feels like that final crescendo. But I really liked ending in Pamplona, I think. You know, having our last day be our longest day was, I mean, I think a, a big part of pilgrimage is the feeling of satisfaction and the feeling of doing something incredibly hard and having our last two days be climbing the Pyrenees and then our longest day, like those back to back made me personally feel so proud of myself. Yeah, I agree. I feel like they kind of just felt like we've been working and like kind of training our bodies for like months, but like we've also been walking all these times that it's like, this is the final push. It was kind of like a final challenge. And I also think I personally wouldn't want to end in St. John Cantipore just because the purities are like right there. And they're like standing in front of you. I wanted to climb them. I wanted to see the viewpoint. I wanted to have that memory. And so I really liked going into Spain too because it felt like the ending. Yeah, I completely agree with both George and Willa. I think it's definitely a few don't want to do the Pyrenees or just want to stay in France. saint jean de is like a perfect ending for that just because it also is like such a shock, like we were saying, from the rest of the walk, getting to more people. And then once I, if you want to be like, oh, I conquered the Pyrenees, that's a pretty good ending point. But like, I really loved ending in Pamplona, like with the longest day. And it felt pretty a good conclusion of the walk. And just to be clear to people listening, we did, as you guys are saying, Roncevalle to Pamplona in one day. That's typically two stages for people walking. It's fun, though. It's fun to end that way. You know, pragmatically speaking, you would think that if your goal ultimately is to walk all the way to Santiago, why would you stop in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port when you are totally fit after having walked for weeks so that you would then return to Saint-Jean later, cold, not having walked at all, to have the hardest day of the entire trip still ahead of you? Might as well hit the Pyrenees crossing when you are as fit as you're going to be. Yeah, completely. I feel like having that as a starting point would be really tough to have your first day be the Pyrenees. I feel like having it be your like second to last day or last day is pretty good. How hard was it when you think back on that walk crossing the Pyrenees? How hard was it for you at that point? I think it got a lot more hype than it actually was. I think we like kind of were like, oh my God, it's going to be the worst. It's going to be so tough. And then it definitely was steep definitely wasn't like flat or easy but it wasn't as hard as I thought it was gonna be and even though it was kind of foggy and rainy for us we got to rest at the mid-ish way point and have some coffee or whatever I kind of remember just the first eight kilometers were uphill they were tough they were hard like it's mm -hmm. it's uphill but after that I was like 
really enjoying the uphill. Like it felt like a really nice steepness. And I was kind of just like looking around. There's horses and sheep on cows, all well, not sheep, cows on the path. And it was just, I mean, I just really enjoyed the walk. Like it was foggy and it was like kind of cool. So that felt nice. I mean, like you say, it's the first seven to eight are genuinely steep. And then it, it definitely eases up after that. There was a lot of pavement walking. The first eight are entirely pavement. There's a little part where it's more dirtish roads. And then it's like completely pavement. With us, with the fog, when it was like super dense fog, it's kind of weird to just see like animals appearing out of the fog. <laughs> it's also cool because I don't know what point we were at, but when Malcolm and Chloe went and crossed that little area and pulled the sword out of the stone, I remember that. That was the wildest moment. Yeah. There's a viewpoint that people who walk this route in clear weather will enjoy where the Virgin is perched on the rocks overlooking a, a great viewpoint. But it was completely covered in fog when we were walking through. So I asked if anyone still wanted to bother going over there. And most people didn't, but a couple of you did. And so we walked over and there is the hilt of a sword sticking out of the rocks, which Malcolm proceeded to pull out. It was the strangest thing. Still can't believe it's real, but we do have the photographs to prove it. Yeah, I think the value of doing it right on is that you hit it fresh and it's not nearly as intimidating. And if you're like we were, even though you're strong, still take it slow, especially if it's foggy, because you really want that view to open up. And we finally got it at the very end. Yeah, it was really cool because it just kind of like stopped. There was one point where the fog just was not there anymore when we got to the top and we got to like relax more in the sun and see like what we just walked up and be like, whoa, that's really cool. All right. We're going to do the draft now. So this is the wrap up to this series on the Via Podiensis. What I've asked you to do is to prepare. We're going to do a five round draft. Each of you will make five selections as we go through the draft. Your favorite towns, villages, places that we walked through on our journey. So what that means for people listening is that this includes the GR65, except for the GR65 between Fijiak and Kaur because in that section we did the Sele Valley and we also did the GR6 out to Rokamador. So that's what we're choosing from as we navigate this. But ultimately, the three of you are going to pick what are collectively your 15 favorite places on the whole Via Podiensis. Prior to this, the draft lottery occurred to determine the order of selection Willa won the lottery, so she will go first. Rachel came in second, and George is bringing up the rear. So that is our draft order as we go through this. So Willa Whalen Stewart, you are on the clock. What is your number one draft pick? Number one is gotta be Marciac. Sally Valley, beautiful river, great jeet, great jeet owners, really pretty town. There's a market. It was awesome. I can't argue with you there. Marciac sur Soleil, number one draft pick, very well earned. Rachel Coors. Okay, besides Marciac, I would say Espelion would be my pick. We walked through there and it was breathtakingly beautiful. 
and just a really nice place. And there's like 57 different bakeries. Yeah. Both George and Willa had visible outrage on their faces when that selection was made. So there's a lot of gnashing of teeth going on in the background here. I can tell that you crushed some dreams with that draft choice. George, Marciak, and Espalion are off the board. What's your pick? And I just want to preface, I'm I'm creating a starting lineup here. So I, I'm incorporating that into my draft selection. Okay. But I'm going to choose Ro Commodore. This was a town that we walked an extra 50 kilometers to go to. Sure. There's so much history there. I mean, we met people that had come from San Francisco just to visit Rocamador, just to visit that one town. We saw monkeys. There was a lot of great food. I dropped my fork off a cliff. And yeah. So if you draft it, you might be able to get your fork back. So that's great. All right. Those are three very defensible choices for first round picks here. Willa, second round, what have you got? I am going to go, this is kind of a weird one. I'm going about Abrak. I really like the town. I know. I really like the Abrak Plateau. And it was kind of like a small town. I had a great time there. There was a group of other teenage pilgrims. So that created some excitement. And there was a cute playground. You could just walk through the town. There was like a fountain, a place to sit. I think Omando Brock is well-deserving of being drafted. The question is whether you overdrafted and whether you could have gotten better value in a, a later round. So that's the question here. But nonetheless, I support you looking at the Obrock and I think going Sele Valley number one, Obrock Plateau second. It's a good vision there. Rachel. I was going to go with Sankom de Ode as my second. I loved that town. It was cool to like walk into, especially because you could kind of see it from a little bit. So Unlike Willa, you're not going for regional diversity. You're just trying to monopolize the Lot River Valley is what's happening here. I see. You don't want to have a long walk between your different destinations. We're only eight kilometers apart here. That is a strategy. I see the value in that. George, what comes after Rocamador? I'm going to choose Saint-Cirque-la-Popie. This was a beautiful village on top of a hill overlooking the lot river we had a lot of fun there played hacky sack climbed the hill of the town the hill on the hill at evening hour and yeah a good spot yeah the legend of the hack circle in saint cirque la popie i think we made a significant impact on that village that dude from the cafe he must be a pro at this point all right two rounds completed Willa, third round pick. I'm going with the cafe halfway up the Pyrenees. Orison? Yeah. That was kind of tough, actually, because I thought we were kind of done with the steep uphill, but there's a little bit after that. But that spot was, I don't know, we just got there and it was foggy and it felt, there were like cows, like as you were walking into the cafe, there were like cows on the side. It just felt very like mystical. There was some good coffee. I really liked it. Rachel may have been traumatized by trying to get around the cows on the road, but other than that, yeah, it's a lovely spot at Orison. You continue to make this strategic move of regional breadth, so I appreciate the strategic vision there. Rachel? I was actually also going to do that one. So 
I'm gonna go Sampale as my next one. Whoa. I really liked the town in general, but especially the courtyard behind Arjit. I thought that was amazing and pretty cool. All right, that is a big change. All right, George, end of the third round. Speaking of big, I'm going to be selecting Pamplona, the biggest town that we went to. You know, if we talk about regional diversity, what's more diverse than a different country altogether? All of the resources you can imagine, beautiful architecture, so many shops, nice jeet. Judges ruling, we will allow it, even though you have left the Via Podiensis for that pick. You could argue that Orison is also pushing the limits a little bit, so we're going to allow it within the context of our walk, but just acknowledging that you're pushing the envelope there. So what I'm, I'm the one staying in the rules. Yes, you are the one staying in the rules. Congratulations. I'm shocked that you are the rule follower here. Let's move on to the fourth round. Willa, what have you got? I feel like if George with an ending point, I got to go starting point. I vote Le Puy. Right. I think I get some size in my draft, and it's a great starting point. The cathedral's beautiful. We got to hike up to the, I forget exactly what it was. There's like a little chapel on the top of the. The Needle. The Needle. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Le Puy's fantastic. I, I got to say, the draft analysts are shocked at a couple of omissions thus far. Lapui was one of them, but there's a, a couple of other pretty big shockers unfolding before us right now. So we'll we'll see what happens. But Lapui en Valais is off the board, and you continue to excel at regional coverage here. So bravo. Rachel, what do you have? The Peshmeral Caves. Because why not? I mean, they're incredible just to experience and great representation of history. The walk to them was tough because we had a 12 reservation, but also super cool. Are we talking about the walk or are we talking about the places, Rachel? Okay, well, the walk includes, because if the walk is terrible, then the place is going to be a little bit worse. Although the walk into San Paulo is terrible. Okay, it's not bad. <laughs> I like that. Okay. All right. Peshmeral it is. It does have a snack bar. So there is some coffee there as well, at least going for it. And ice cream. And ice cream. Of course, ice cream. George? This is a very tough choice for me, but I think I am going to go with the town of Estan. We stayed there. It was a very, very nice town. I really liked our Jeet. It was probably my favorite Jeet. It was super modern and there was a turf soccer field right outside. There was a pool in the town. A river, and I just want to throw out that Rachel took Espalion with, I believe, her first pick. Mm -hmm. When Estan is a very, very similar town in a lot of ways, you know, they're they're very close to each other, and I got it with my fourth pick. So it's great value. Yes, the the Drapniks are shocked that Estan made it to the fourth round, and as am I. They do highlight that as an excellent value selection here. We're heading into the last round now. Willa, fifth pick. What have you got? I gotta go Conk. How has it lasted to the fifth round? Yeah, I don't understand. Staggering. I got that fifth round? Like, easy. You might have just won best draft by picking Conk. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. There's still two other choices remaining, but anyone listening at home is amazed, horrified, appalled that Conk lasted until the fifth round. So, Rachel, what do you have? I was gonna go Conk. Because I was also surprised that lasted. 
It's like Victor Wembanyama going in the fifth round. Staggering. What? I don't actually have the name for it. There was one of the towns that we were walking along a lot of cliffs and it was kind of half below us. Like in the Sele Valley, like Saint Sulpice. Yeah, I think it was that one. Yeah, that was amazing to see. And we took a break in there and we didn't stay overnight there either, but it was really like beautiful views and the architecture of the buildings was just super cool too. Yeah, troglodyte houses built into the caves. Mm-hmm. It's nice. George? Okay. There's a lot riding on this last pick, George. Okay. Well, I I could either win the draft or lose the draft right here. You can. And I'm deciding between two. So, okay, this is what I, I'm not I'm not choosing this one, but I really 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 wanted to go for Day Cosville. <laughs> but That's, I'm not you're just pandering it. to me there with that. I'm not going to choose it. I'm not going to choose it. When I think about my selections, I need balance, right? A good team has balance. Everyone knows that. And I picked Pamplona, which was the largest town it went to. So I think it's only right that I select Lauren Sange, <laughs> which was, I believe it's the smallest village. Smallest fortified village. Fortified village in all of France. It was a super, super unique place that we went to we didn't stay there but we walked through it there was not a whole lot in terms of places to go there because it's so tiny but in terms of uniqueness and balance to my lineup i don't think there's anything else i could do really i thought you were gonna go with tevies with the graveyard yeah oh that town was (laughs) bad though (laughs) it was on my list i like the like gazebo in the middle of that town so i think looking at the selections overall some people are going to be surprised by the lack of attention to the abrak plateau only one place selected there not no nasvinal no abrak village there is very little representation of the bigger towns along the way including kaor no fijak those were not chosen along the way some of the well-liked hill towns further south, so Lausert, Lectour, Ovilar. I really wanted to choose Ovilar. I couldn't fit it in my roster. I had Lectour. I had Lectour as well. So those are some of the ones that stand out to me at first. So we'll we'll see what the listeners think in terms of these. But Willa's team is Marciac sur Soleil, Aumont Aubrac, Orison, Le Puy-en-Velay, and Conque. Rachel's is Espalion, Saint Condol, Saint Palais, Peshmer, and Saint Sulpice. And George, Rocamadour, Saint Cirque La Popie, Pamplona, Estang, and Lara Sangle. Here's the breakdown of the 15 places chosen in that draft by George, Rachel, and Willa. They picked the three major pilgrimage destinations along the way, Le Puy, Conque, and Rocamadour. They chose one spot in the Obrac Plateau, three in the Lot Valley, four in the Sele Valley, including Saint-Cirque-la-Popie, which technically isn't, but fits into that walk, two between Cahors and Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, and two after Saint-Jean. Setting those last two aside, that means there were six places on the GR65 before Fijac, 
five places on variants, Rocamador plus the four Sele Valley spots, and two places on the GR65 onward to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. This is not a scientific process or anything, but the results certainly reinforce the prevailing narratives. That the first chunk of the Via Podiensis is impressive, that the variants between Fijac and Cahora are quite memorable, and likely more memorable than the GR65 in that stretch, though it has to be noted the students haven't walked that section, and that the second half of the Via Podiensis from Cahors to Saint-Jean is less noteworthy than the first half. And that lesser notability certainly emerges from the conversations in this episode, where Robert, the students, and I sometimes were limited in the amount of specifics we could bring to bear on long chunks of individual stages. Listening back, I recognized that it would be easy for someone to discern contradictory messaging, given that the students and I talked about how parts of the last few stages were largely unremarkable, and yet Robert and I encouraged pilgrims on the Camino Frances to consider starting in Navarrens and walking those very same stages. That apparent contradiction, though, is largely one of perspective. For those having walked from Le Puy, those final stages are likely to suffer both in comparison to what preceded them and in anticipation of what's ahead, as one's attention is increasingly directed towards those mountains looming above you. By contrast, those just beginning their walk have a great chance to settle in physically, get a taste of something they otherwise won't be able to enjoy, walking through the French countryside and benefiting from French Jeet hospitality especially, and they'll get a longer taste of that distinct Basque village architecture, which is always so striking to pilgrims. The other point, though, is one that I made to the students when we were in Coor and looking ahead to a second half of the walk that is, again, less spectacular than the first half. At that point, I suggested they needed to focus on changing their relationship with walking. In the Lot and Sele Valley, the highlights were so significant, so abundant, so consistent, that they could get by just fine, with their prevailing attitude being that the walk was the thing they had to push through in order to get to the good stuff. Instead, moving forward, as the obvious rewards became more subtle or more spread out, they needed to think about walking differently, to perceive the walk itself as the reward. And while I once found the layout of the Via Podiensis to be mildly disappointing, with the sights peaking early and then dwindling in the final week, I now appreciate how it can offer a great training ground for walking, offering enough incentives and immediate gratification to draw in the walker early on, and then gradually reduce those elements as they push onward and push deeper. The changes one makes to their approach to walking, becoming more reflective in their thoughts, clearing their head of thoughts entirely, taking careful note of nature unfolding around them, or investing more time and energy into conversation with others along the way, don't necessarily translate well to this podcast format, where a noteworthy chasson aux palmes is easier to discuss than two hours of tranquil walking. Ultimately, though, I think that's one way the Via Podiensis can be great. First, making the pilgrim fall in love with the walk, and then fall in love with walking. As for the draft, well, it comes down to Will and George's squads for me. On draft day, I lean towards George's squad, and he certainly deserves credit for assembling that team with the last draft pick, a clear competitive disadvantage. He got great value. The main knock, looking back at it from a distance, 
is that he has gone hard on heavily touristed spots. Rocamadour, Saint-Sur-Clapopie, Pamplona, Estang, La Sangle. Of course, places are heavily touristed in most cases because they're beautiful and or significant. There's good reason to want to go to those places. Willis certainly has that as well with Conk. But Marciac and Omont-Aubrac have beauty plus breathing room. I do still get stuck on that latter pick. I think if Willa had opted for Nazbinal or Abrak Village instead of Omantobrak, I would have much more easily gravitated towards her squad. But those are just my petty biases at work. As for Rachel, hey, if you had a week and you had to choose, walking through the lot and Sully Valleys would probably make you as happy as you could be. I don't think you could do much better for a week. So while that very narrow emphasis didn't win the draft for her, I certainly see the logic behind those selections. If you have a strong preference, please post your thoughts on the Camino Podcast Facebook page. The students would love to hear your feedback and to be able to hold those votes in their favor over the heads of their peers. And with that, I wrap up this 10-part series and also this latest batch of episodes. I'm heading out today for a walk. I'll be starting in Auch, France, this summer, then cobbling together bits of the Arles route, the Voie du Piment, the Aragonais, the Bastan, the GR11, the Norte, the Mar, the Inglés, and the Portugais, finishing in Porto. I'll do some write-ups from the road on DaveWhitson.com, so check that out if you're interested. I don't know when I'll be back in front of the microphone. Next year promises to be a particularly heavy teaching year. But you know the drill at this point. I'll show up again sooner or later. Thanks to Robert Deming, George Pritchard, Rachel Kors, and Willow Whalen stewart for speaking with me for this episode. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. See you sometime. Been chasing after my shadow Nobody asked me